I am you. And you are me. It's just a crazy storm. Hello and welcome to Action Packed, the travel podcast. I'm Peter. And I'm Felice. Together we've spent half a lifetime travelling to just about every corner of the world, making a living as travel riders part of what we like doing best. And that's skiing, biking, beaches, hiking and a whole lot more. Each week, Action Packed gives us the opportunity to share with you on the show some of these great experiences and the amazing people we meet along the way. Right now, real travel is limited to a daily walk around our local park but the world will one day return to normal. Meanwhile, dreams are risk-free and they're always available. You can find out more about us on our website, actionpacktravel.com. We'll regularly be posting links and show notes and loads of other useful stuff. If you like what you hear, please click on the subscribe button and listen to more episodes. Sudie Piggott describes herself as a discerningly greedy, ever-curious journalist with more than 20 years' experience writing on food, restaurants and travel. Hi, Sudie, and welcome to Action Packed. Hi, lovely to be with you. First of all, can you tell us how you got into food writing as a career? Yes, it was, well, a deliberate accident. At the time, I was working for the British Film Institute on the South Bank. And over lunches, I got to know a a girl who worked for Homes and Gardens magazine at a cafe just along the river. And that made me think about how I'd always really wanted to be a journalist. And then I happened to see a course that John Diamond, um, who was who was the hu- first husband, Nigella Lawson was running a one-day course on how to be a food writer. I went along, to, not a food writer, a journalist, actually. So others were doing all sorts of different journalism, more interested in that. And that really inspired me and just made me feel this is what I should be doing. And I kind of launched myself gradually from there, just really having the nerve to write to people with ideas that appealed and gradually I got commissioned quite quickly by some nationals and I became the restaurant critic for Miss London for a long long time. And were you always passionate about food even as a child? Yeah I pretty much I've always been obsessed with food I would say. I, I used to make proper tea parties for my dolls and soft toys and <laughs> like little loaves and bakes and cakes and my mom and my grandma were both very very good cooks I mean we're Jewish and I think that kind of almost goes with the territory and food is always central to our life and my mom would always say you know have you eaten what have you eaten so yeah and I had um, an aunt who had a most incredible collection of cookbooks and whenever I went there I would spend most of my time immersed in them and I like, even when I was a teenager and had like a Saturday job, I'd take myself out to lunch as well. So, yeah. Do you travel a lot with your job? It is, it is an important part of it, and both to meet chefs and to meet producers and kind of see harvests or, you know, understand the production of anything from kind of gorgonzola to see how oysters are, are farmed and, and mussels, for example, in, um, in Galway and Connemara. Tell me, Sudi, are most celebrity chefs the monsters in the kitchen that they're made out to be? A lot of them were like that, yes. And um, I would probably get libel, you know, done for libel if I name some of the things and people I've heard. 
I think they're realizing it's not acceptable and people won't work there anymore. It'd be more difficult to recruit staff and they realize that if you're actually reasonable to each other, get the work done in a more effective and enjoyable way. I think it's changing. I mean, you're working under incredible pressure. I can understand why people do lose their tempers, but I think the violence and the bullying has to stop. Is there one chef who's influenced your cooking more than any other? Well, I think the chef that's had the greatest influence on me, I wouldn't say that necessarily my cooking. So I was very fortunate. I met Massimo Batura before he was at all famous. And we, we, you know, we, we became friends. I went out to see him and stayed, stayed at his home kind of several times, got lots of very cool art and furniture. And he took me around to visit lots of his producers. And that's made a huge impact on me. And I just love the way um, jazz and art keyed very much into his life. And, you know, we're still very much in touch. I just got a message from his wife this morning. Um, but in terms of the food, I going back to my roots, I really love Middle Eastern food. So um, the, hun- the Honey and Co people, Otto Lenghi have made a kind of huge impression on me, I would say. You've created a database called Women of Food. I'm collecting, compiling a database of all the women who run kitchens or restaurants throughout the UK. And I just really, really hope they'll be able to start them up again. So although I'm doing a bit of work on bringing that that up to date into a fuller list, I realise I'm going to have to wait and see what happens. But I've always been a big champion of female chefs and feel that they're not given as much coverage in the media as they should have and play second fiddle and really they need a lot a a lot more profile. Now Sudi we're living in unprecedented times in these weeks of quarantine have you managed to stock your lard with all you need for what may be a long period? I've done my utmost to do so yes Um, but I feel okay about it because I don't think I've really been stockpiling what everyone else has been off. <laughs> I mean, I haven't really been stockpiling, to be honest. It was already pretty well stocked. I've got quite a lot of different flowers. I'm struggling to get kind of normal flour because I want to restart my sourdough. But I've got chickpea flour and I've got teff flour and I've got um, lots of different quinoa and something called maluf, which is large um, kind of Israeli-style couscous, and a, lot, um, a good supply of cuccini mushrooms that I brought back from Krakow, actually. I always bring, bring foods back from, from my travels as well, and lots of different honeys and, and spices as well. Do you have any useful tips for boosting the immune system? Any sort of recipe, any superfoods that you'd recommend? Yeah, there are lots and not necessarily the ones people think of first. I mean, firstly, it's important to have lots of fibre. So the chickpeas and butter beans and things like that are really important. And as well as vitamin C is very good. And that's not found just in citrus. Uh, Broccoli is a really good source of it. And papaya, particularly, and kiwi, though I still struggle with kiwi a a little bit. Um, And of course, chicken soup is probably the best thing you can have, and something I often crave. It has, well, it's well known as being the Jewish penicillin, (laughs) and it has these kind of wondrous restorative 
qualities. Honey is very good as well. It's an antibacterial. And I have a very good honey collection, raw honey that hasn't been processed in any way. What about foraging for food? Can people do this safely? Have you done any of this yourself? Uh, yes, a lot. A few years back in really Venezia, um, it was something called Cook It Raw. So it was a big group of chefs going feral, really, um, with um, Claude Bossi from Abendum here and Albert Adria and uh, Massimo Batura, lo- lots of chefs. And we were kind of going a bit wild in this area close to the Serbian border. And the weather was appalling. It was really, really cold. And basically everything for the meals had to be collected kind of outside. So there was a lot of foraging there. And I've also been on other courses so I'm reasonably good at potting things it's always if in doubt just don't do it. Do you know your mushrooms? Some of them but again I would own only if I was absolutely sure I mean I have found puffballs and been sure that they're puffballs but anything I wasn't sure about I wouldn't eat at all. You have to be really really careful I mean I think if you live by the sea there's lots and lots of um, sea vegetables you can forage and eat, and they're quite easily recognisable. But there are quite a few things that kind of look like something else, and you just have to be careful. There are lots of different apps you can download now. Wild garlic is in season now, and garlic's, of course, very good for your immune system. So that might be a good place to start. Mm. And it'd be a good way of keeping people away from you as well, actually. Very Although you're not meant to go out wild and forage at the moment, are you? You're meant to be staying at home. So. No, but if you, if you know of a field, I mean, this is more if you're out of the country, if you know of a field where they have wild garlic or a forest, you could probably do that whilst keeping your social distance. I read that you've been to both a saffron and a cranberry harvest. Tell us about those. Oh, yeah, this, uh, saffron is something that I've been obsessed with for many years. I just find it fascinating that something kind of so tiny and insignificant looking is so valuable. And so I was really thrilled when I got the opportunity to go to La Mancha last year. I actually went with one of the women who organises the Madrid Fusion, which is very, very well connected in the food world. And she knew someone who has a beautiful, beautiful boutique kind of more like a jewellers in Madrid which sells all sorts of saffron products so we the two of us went to see one of his producers and just a few fields produce an enormous amount and this is um, a family it's a third generation they used to have to carry all the saffron on their backs and made their all their clothes yellow now now they have a car but it's very much um, a family affair and you you have to like bend down and pick every single um, stamen individually um, by hand. And then they've kind of taken over the lo- one of the local halls. Well, actually, it's part of a convent. The saffron strands have to be dried and toasted on something that's like a really, really basic sandwich machine, but it's something they fashion themselves. And the mother, the matriarch, does the toasting very carefully, just all by eye, and then it's left to dry. It was amazing. And then we we went to a restaurant in a windmill that specialised in saffron um, foods. I mean, rather more than normal. Like every course had saffron <laughs> in it, which was which was good fun. It wasn't the best meal I've ever had, but the idea was really fun. And there's even a saffron creme brulee. It was so windy up there, and the lady we were with is very kind of slight and petite. And, 
we had to hold on. <laughs> um, it was that yeah, was great. The um, cranberry harvest in Boston again something that got really really stuck in. Uh, people don't necessarily know that they grow kind of semi underwater, a bit like watercress. And so we waded out with all the people, the farmers who were collecting it, and they had these special kind of rakes for bringing them together, seeing these whole kind of lakes of cranberries was really amazing. It was also extremely cold and wet. So it was quite, quite challenging. It, the weather had changed very suddenly and unexpectedly. And are the lakes red? Well, yes, they are. They they do look red from all the berries, yeah. And then I, I know you're a big fan of street food, uh, particularly in the Far East, I think. Yeah, well, I, I've been to Hong Kong, Singapore, which I've been to frequently. Yeah, I've, I've been to Singapore quite a lot. And there are, huge, there are a huge number of um, street traders there, hawkers, who've been doing it for, well, for centuries. I mean, they probably find the idea that street food is very cool here, you know, hilarious, because that's been their way of life for a very, very long time. And it's very well known which are the best places to go for, you know, for particular dishes. So you would, you would go from kind of market to market, and they're huge, like kind of aircraft hangers for a particular dish, like a kind of Hyannese chicken or a seafood dish or some kind of dumplings. Um, I've also quite a lot of street food in Bangkok. I don't think there's any point in going to a country and not having the street food. And of course, the falafel in um, Tel Aviv is probably the best falafel in the world. Yeah, I agree. Is there any food that you really don't like at all? I didn't like tripe when I tried it. I wouldn't have that again, apart from anything else. It's not for me. I don't like the texture. Yeah. No, apart from that, I used not to like marmalade at all, but I don't think I tried really, really good marmalade. And some friends of mine have a company called Tea Together, and they used to make it like on their fermet in northern France, um, near Montreux. And um, they, they now, their son now runs it from a slightly larger place, still very small scale, and that introduced me to kind of marmalade on a different level. And you're keen on um, wood-fired cooking as well. Yeah, yeah, no, I love that. I mean, before it became such a thing in London, I'd been to San Sebastian quite a lot, and there's a small town nearby called um, Gateria, and that's really where places like Rath in London got their inspiration. But Your most recent book is called Flipping Good. It's all about pancakes around the world. Sounds delicious. What was your inspiration for that? The kind of warmth and affection that people have for pancakes, really. Because whenever you talk pancakes, people tend to smile and start <laughs> reminiscing and thinking about you know, happy occasions with their family. And also it was partly because I love um, soccer in Nice and wanted to find out more or about other kind of less obvious pancakes. Like in Italy, they have farinata and in Japan, they have um, what well, was more like a kind of omelette cabbage kind of pancake called okonomiyaki and it has a special kind of slightly spicy sauce. Um, and I also included pancakes from well, really everywhere from um, the Middle East, Thailand, um, Turkey, China. I'd like to do a bigger kind of proper pancake Bible, really, because I was only scratching the surface. Sudi, we look forward to reading that. 
perhaps in time for Shrove Tuesday next year. You never know. Sudi Pickett, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you very much. I re- really love being with you. Thank you, Sudi. We've learnt lots. And the best of luck with your online workshops, where you can learn how to become a food writer or blogger. Normally, you do these in person, but for the moment, they're online. You can find out all about these at sudifoodie.com. More details in our show notes at actionpacktravel.com. That's all for now. If you've enjoyed the show, do please visit our website, actionpacktravel.com, or subscribe on Spotify, Google Podcasts, iTunes, or another of the many platforms that we're on. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with at least one other person. Next week, we're talking a load of hot air, chatting to daredevil balloonist Peter Mason, who organised the first flight over Mount Everest. Meanwhile, stay safe. I am you, and you are me. It's just a crazy storm.